Hi, I'm Max Linsky, and today on the books that changed us, Heather Haverleski. She's New York Magazine's Ask Polly advice columnist. She also maintains the Ask Molly newsletter, which is written by Polly's evil twin. She's the author of three books, What If This Were Enough, How to Be a Person in the World, and Disaster Preparedness. And as you'll hear, she's working on a new book, too. Who are you and uh, and what do you do? My name is Heather Haverleski, and I write the Ask Polly advice column for New York Magazine. And I've also written, let's see, four books. The last one is yet to be published. It's with my editor now. And yeah, what else about me? That's it. That's great. <laughs> That's plenty about you. Enough about you. <laughs> Please. Um, Heather, is there one book that made you want to become... A writer, like maybe when you were a kid or maybe not when you were a kid, but is there a book you can remember reading and being like, that is the thing that I want to do? I didn't really decide to become a writer at a young age, but I do remember very vividly picking up a copy of Rabbit is Rich by John Updike. My parents had tons of books and the, there were just bookshelves all over and old, you know, like beat up paperbacks all over the place. But Rabbit is Rich, I just remember reading the first page and it was just so vivid and strange and I could not put it down. The main character, Rabbit Angstrom, reminded me a lot of my dad. (laughs) It basically was like this portrait of life in the 80s. The thing is, Updike is like this author that not only writes about the internal experience of feeling kind of like an angsty teenager, but all the time for the stretch of your entire life, (laughs) but he also just captures American pop culture through the lens of a depressed person, essentially, (laughs) and a trapped person who can't quite get out of his own head and can't connect with people. And for a teenager, that's like the craziest. It was sort of like my catcher in the rye. Rabbit is rich. Wait, how old were you when you picked it up? You know, I have to look up when what year that book came out, but I feel like I was like 17, 16. Okay. Oh, 1981. So I might have been like 13 or 14. Hmm. And do you feel like that description you just had that uh, like he was an angsty teen long after he was a teen? Does that feel like it applies to you? Oh, my God. Max, you're so mean. (laughs) Why? That's just a question. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) definitely. I mean, the thing is, the book is was way over my head. It was like it has a lot of dirty stuff. All the rabbit books have dirty stuff in it. I went back and read all of, all four of the books in the series. And it's just all about this like horny middle-aged man. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I do I feel like an overgrown teen for sure. So sometime between the ages of 13 and 17, read that book, felt like a little bit like you were reading about your dad. And it didn't necessarily make you want to be a writer, but it was the first time that you had that feeling where it's just like, I can't put this down. It was the first time that I read a book where I thought, I understand this character as a person. I understand how it feels to be this person, essentially. Like when I read books for school, William Faulkner, I was never like, I understand how Rosa Sharn feels, you know? I I was never like Charles Dickens, you know? 
I, you know, I really relate to Oliver Twist. I just, I never really felt connected to books until I read that book. And I felt like I understand what it's like to be a horny middle-aged man now. <laughs> I mean, maybe that, maybe that is actually my archetype is not a teenager, but a horny middle-aged man. I think that, I think that might be more Well, now, you're, now, now we're really getting somewhere. Now I feel like we're, we're uncovering some interesting <laughs> stuff. Well, it's interesting because I feel like, um, you know, the work of an advice columnist is in part like to be an empathetic person, right? To like uh, understand characters on a page sort of. Yeah. And I mean, I think that the way that um, Updike writes, I wouldn't say he's the most emotional writer, but there's something about the way he filtered alienation and, you know, um, sort of how the main characters experience the pop cultural artifacts the alienating artifacts of American life. Like there are always scenes with like Toyota, like he works at a Toyota dealership and um, there are all these scenes where he talks about the different Toyota ad campaigns and Toyota thons and things like that. And at the time, I think I was just becoming a little depressed and there was something about like the cheer of American radio that just brought me down (laughs) the kind of manic, hyper, happy, it didn't match that mood, that American kind of pop culture mood didn't match my home life at all because my parents were pretty unhappy and then they got divorced. And they actually got divorced around 1981 when this book came out. So I was probably like peak depressed um, when I picked the book up as a kid and, and peak kind of traumatized. So there was something, maybe it was just that I was in like a very kind of sponge-like vulnerable state. I think timing with this stuff is everything. It's like you're going through a crisis and you pick up a book and suddenly all these dimensions of your crisis are sort of addressed there Mm -hmm. unexpectedly. But I never really thought that I'd find that in a book. I didn't see books as, I thought of them almost as like boy things. Like I didn't see books as things that would ever depict a world that I could understand because I hadn't read that many books by women. I mean, whatever, we're talking about Updike, like ironically. I don't know. There was something about the language that made me feel like, oh, wow, books are a whole, uh, actually a chance to kind of inhabit another person's, their their nerves and their cells. Right. And that's so true also that like timing is everything. It's all about when it hits you, like how it's going to hit you, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you can look at something brilliant when you're in high school and you're just shut down and nothing's really you're just not open to the information and you don't care. And then there are other times when you kind of have no skin, you know, it's like everything that you encounter is sort of has the potential to kind of change you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do think that we're kind of in a, a period like that right now. I mean, everyone is almost because I don't know, there's something about the, I, obviously global pandemic, they kind of, it kind of flays you, you know, like yeah. you're, you're, you feel vulnerable. Is there a book that, sticks out to you as like the one that changed you in some profound way that like you were a different person afterwards? When I was in college, I read this collection of writing by Adrian Rich called Of Woman Born. And, I, you know, I, it's like this gigantic book filled with speeches and essays You know, Adrienne Rich is a poet and a radical feminist, and she sort of, the way that she writes about feminist issues, I mean, at the time, I definitely called myself a feminist. I was taking women's studies courses. I mean, it was the reason why I picked this book up. 
But the writing is so beautiful. And so um, she writes so movingly about not feeling connected to the world around you. I mean, there's, I think there's a theme here. (laughs) She writes beautifully about how it feels to grow up as a woman in a patriarchal society and how it feels under your skin to be treated as someone whose voice is less important than the voices around you. And she also writes a lot about how the remedy for that is sort of daring to take up space, daring to be inconvenient to other people, and also daring to let your humanity show in odd ways at unexpected times and not just sort of like echoing the party line at all times and making yourself softer and prettier and more conveniently, uh, politely easy to get along with, essentially. I mean, I think it's interesting because there are people who write about this subject and you read it and think, no, no, I'd rather be softer and prettier and easier to get along with. (laughs) But there's something about the way Adrian Rich writes about that stuff that just, you understand how, what a radical act it is to just take up space and tell the truth and to be honest to other people and to be, to be honest to other women specifically. I feel like that's um, so much of what you do, too. Yeah, I'm a, ex- I'm a lot like Adrian Rich, Max. <laughs> that's a what lot. I was trying to drive at. No, I'm but there are so like, much like her. There, you, you can, you know, tell me to fuck off if you want to. But there's a connection between what you're talking about and the kind of work that you do. Yeah, like I feel for like sure. your advice is often to be honest and take up space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, with the timing, we were talking about how timing matters so much. I think I was already becoming a kind of inconvenient in the way person at the time. And there was something about this book that made me realize that what I was doing was, you know, valiant and courageous and revolutionary. I got to say, it's kind of hard for me to picture you as like um, a soft bullshitter. (laughs) I mean, there are different times in your life when you're, you're kind of like, you're under a lot of pressure to be softer and to be more of a bullshitter, especially as a woman and as a mother, as a wife, you know. But I do think that, like, you know, my personality is the one that goes back to being obtrusive and demanding repeatedly. And, you know, that's, that, that cycle probably will never change. So I think I encountered this text, like, at a time when it was sort of a question whether I should shut up and play along or keep telling people the truth and kind of making a mess at times with the truth. Did you talk about the experience of reading that book with people? Like, was it something you processed out loud with other people or was it internal? Well, I had a group of friends that was mostly guys and there are two women and everybody would like sit around playing cards You'd smoke enough pot that you couldn't see the cards very well. And <laughs> and then you'd just like, everyone would be talking at each other. But I remember like, I would sometimes talk to the other two women friends about how we were sort of the smartest people in the room, but everyone cut us off mid-sentence all the time and how that seemed a little odd. I mean, it sounds really arrogant to say that, but looking back, I mean, these were <laughs> crazy smart women And it was kind of remarkable to all of us that every time we would talk for more than a few seconds, we'd get interrupted. But these guys were like putting their foot on the table and playing like tangled up in blue on their 
crappy guitars <laughs> and everyone would just fall silent like they were movie stars. So we would complain about it behind the scenes and then we'd get together again and I'd be like, you know, you guys interrupt us a lot. And the other two women would just go silent. Like, no, we're not doing this. Really? And I was like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> what, what, why, you know, you guys, we just talked about this and they wouldn't, they would not join in. They were like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. It just was the times, you know, it's not like they were that terrible or that chicken. I just remember feeling, I mean, I was just a confrontational person and they weren't probably, but I was kind of on the warpath. I kind of felt like it was so hard to get people to kind of like notice their sexism in 1991. <laughs> you know, it was like it, it wasn't on the table. People just didn't pay attention. Mansplaining was not a verb, mm -hmm. you know. And the book gave you some sort of like language for it? I kind of wasn't really an intellectual, like I was sort of, all intellectual shit was sort of private with me. So I would read, I would read the stuff and feel inspired, but then I'd go out and I'd be like, put it in the context of playing cards or something. You right, know what I mean? Right. I'm sure I wasn't like, you know, Adrian Rich commented on the alienation <laughs> that we are experiencing. Right, <laughs> that right. wasn't really my style. But it sat with you. Yeah. I mean, I, I still have the same copy of the book and I still pull it out and it's the most beautifully written book. It's just like everything. She was just really just had a way with language that was amazing. When do you come back to it now? Like when do you open it up? Sometimes when I'm trying to think about, I don't know. I mean, I think I go looking for this one quote over and over again about how I think I've used it in like three pieces since then. It's, it's sort of like I repeat the same things over and over. I mean, I've written about Updike before too. I've only read three books, Max, so it's, <laughs> it's pretty limiting. Yeah, I mean, I go to it when I'm thinking about sort of how we digest the sort of poisons of our culture without thinking about it and how we spit those poisons back out and how we repeat, the, we feed each other the same poisons over and over again. And I need the language to describe that and I want to find some way to like, to kind of put that into words when I go into her prose, I feel like it's just so alive and so vivid. It feels like it's possible. It reminds me that it's possible to evoke in the reader the exact feeling that you want to evoke if you find the right words. I mean, I don't think that I believed that I could do that until very recently. Hmm. Um, but I'm also kind of writing prose a little more and writing poetry a little more. So I'm more interested in the provocations of language than I was just a few years ago. You know, with the advice column, it's pretty plain language. You're just saying like, do this, don't do that. But I find myself kind of wanting to capture some of the same ideas, but through, through prose and poetry and through images and through kind of more fantastical experiments with language. So that's, it's strange that I encountered this book at age, you know, 20, and now I feel like the stuff that I'm doing is I'm trying to become her, I guess. At some level, I'm trying to be Adrian Rich. Well, maybe that's, uh, I feel like you're starting to answer my last question. Uh, so maybe it's the same answer, but maybe it's not. So I'll ask it anyway. Is there a, um, is there a book that helped you when you were writing one of your books, whether it was one of the ones that's uh, out already or the one that's about to come out? Um, let's see. Yeah, I mean, I read a lot of Sedaris when I was writing my memoir. That was like 10 years ago because I love him. And I read um, 
The most sort of notable book that I read over and over when I was writing What If This Were Enough, which is my uh, collection of cultural essays, was um, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. It's like a snapshot of um, just how broken American culture is. But my most recent book that I just turned into my editor is about my marriage. So never write a book like that, Max, just FYI, (laughs) words of the wise. How come? Interestingly enough, (laughs) it's very difficult to write. I mean, I really wanted to write a book about my marriage that made it clear what kind of marriage I have, because I've read a bunch of books about marriage, about people's marriages, and I never have a clear sense of what their marriages are like. Like, I just feel like it's hard to be honest about how annoying being married can be and how good it can be and how frustrating it can be. Um, So that was the plan. And then it turns out to be really hard to write about falling in love with your spouse. It's almost like I didn't want to revisit how much I cared about my husband in the book. I th- that just felt too soft. I was like, ugh, <laughs> don't make me do that. Um, so there was all this resistance to telling sweet stories at first. And then I kind of went through this like midlife crisis in the middle of writing the book, which was jarring. And there were so many times where I was like, shit, I don't know if I can write this book. Like, you know, I started to sort of spin out, like, what is marriage? Why do, you know, you really, I basically my definition of commitment and what marriage is and should be changed as I was writing the book. Whoa. So that was intense. Was there some like book that you could refer to or, or were you like living in some marital memoir land that there wasn't a real like um, example for? Well, actually the book that I kept referring back to was um, Kiese Lehman's Heavy. Yeah. Because it's this beautiful memoir about Kiese's uh, relationship with his mother and his childhood. It's a complicated, complex, rich and difficult relationship that he has with his mother and his childhood was incredibly difficult. And But the way that he writes about these things is so dynamic, so completely unique, and so completely in his voice. I'd never read a memoir that just felt like, again, like living inside the brain of another human being. I don't even know how I would describe how good that book is. It's just such its own flavor. Mm -hmm. You begin the book and it's extremely honest. It's so honest and so vivid and so beautiful. And it just made me, mostly what it did was it informed my understanding of like how much you can, I don't want to say get away with, but how much leeway you have when you're in your, the in the right place and you're being honest and you're in the voice of your story when you're really um, occupying the brutality of the memory that you're trying to explore in a vivid way. It's, it's hard to put it into words again. <laughs> yeah. I'm a writer. <laughs> I put things into words that, that book really made me realize that it's not really about writing sweet little paragraphs about, you know, falling in love. And then this happened and this happened. If when you're telling a story, it doesn't have to be chronological. It doesn't have to, it's almost like your first job is to, allow the reader to understand the emotional experience and then everything kind of grows out from there. Or at least that's what I see as the, the primary job. So I would begin each chapter 
there'd be a chapter on being pregnant, a chapter on having a baby for the first time. And I would start each chapter, just try to get inside the mindset that I was in when I was in that place. It was like the first and most important job was to express how it felt to be pregnant. You know, yeah. I was like a, a lunatic when I was pregnant. <laughs> and then to express like when I started to feel like, oh my God, what is marriage? Why marriage? Why stay married? Who does this? It was sort of like being honest about that instead of, because, you know, it's a crisis in and of itself when you're writing a book about marriage and you're like, I'm not sure I believe in marriage anymore. Right. <laughs> it's like, how can I write this goddamn did, book? Did you talk about that with your husband? Oh, yeah, a lot. Yeah. I mean, he's a very, very patient man, <laughs> which is why we're still <laughs> married. I mean, basically, by the end of the book, I was sort of like, okay. I would definitely be divorced by now if I'd married anyone else besides my husband, like just five times over divorced. What I, where I landed was I'm not a natural married person. Actually. I thought all along like, yeah, marriage, I'm very pro marriage. But by the end of it, I was like, oh my God, I'm kind of a commitment phobe at heart. <laughs> like I didn't even know it. But the thing about uh, my husband is he's just so goddamn good that I, you know, it's like, I don't want to live a life beside anyone else, actually. Well, it sounds, um, you know, uh, you're going to hate this. It sounds pretty romantic. <laughs> I hope so. I don't know. So maybe things will change in the next few months and it'll end with divorce. You know, the thing about marriage is you can say it's a done deal. And the thing is, you still wake up every morning and you have to read it. It's not the commitment is a thing, I think, for the first like 10 years. And then it's almost like you just decide every day. Um, not that you don't have any commitment, but you sort of realize that you've moved into a place where you're honoring the other person's desires instead of honoring the commitment you made. Does hmm. that make sense? So if their desires change, you would honor that change. If things are working, you love the person enough, you just want them to be happy. You know right, what I mean? Right. Even if they're kind of a different person than they were when you made the commitment. Yeah, and maybe their whole idea of what their life should look like changes. And if you're really being truly married to someone is sort of letting them not be married to you if they need that without being punishing about it, right? It's like you're so on their side that that you want them to do whatever they need to do. Even if it's be on another side. Yeah, I think so. But it is kind of hard to leave someone who's really that on your side too, right? right. Like, Right. Heather, what's the name of your book? Isn't It Romantic was a title that got batted around. The <laughs> title that I want is Happy Ending. <laughs> because it's sort of like, the book itself is a little apocalyptic, right? Like it starts out happy and then it gets crazy. And it ends with like COVID and a health scare and all the shit. So yeah, I like Happy Ending. But I don't know if my editor is going to like that title. It's Titles are hard. Totally. Also writing a book about your marriage sounds pretty hard. <laughs> You could do it. No way. Heather, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, it was really fun. The Books That Changed Us is made in partnership with Longform and MailChimp Presents. The show is produced by Janelle Pfeiffer, art by Joelle Avellino, music by Aaron Lammer. Thank you to Heather for sharing the books that changed her. Talking to Heather is always so fun and replenishing. And you know what else is replenishing? Buy the books. You can find the whole lineup, incredible conversations, essays, the whole thing at MailChimp.com slash presents.